when Lorena uh, told us that she wasn't going to be here uh, today, and then our normal uh, substitute worship leaders were not able to lead today, I looked at Lori and I said, want to sing some hymns? And she said yes. And so thank you so much for doing that. I will tell you, something happened in my early 20s when I was dealing with some heavy things myself. Um, and I went, if, I'm, if I want to sing songs and worship the Lord, give me the good stuff. And so that includes not just some of the contemporary stuff that my natural palate loves, but the depth that comes from hymns. And so understand that if you're a Christian and you love singing, any song that is contemporary in this moment uh, will be traditional five minutes from now. And so all songs that we sing now are on uh, that are built on the foundation of the songs that came before. So I haven't sung, uh, sung some of those since I was a kid. So that was, that was great. Thank you for that. Um, go ahead and turn your Bible. John 18, 1. Uh, last week, Christian Coase, friend of mine, fellow pastor uh, here in our central district of uh, denominational churches, uh, he preached for us, and I had a moment... Uh, occur to me while he was preaching. I was, I was the first time I think that I've been here while someone else is preaching. And I remember thinking, I can't wait for next week. And it had nothing to do with what he was saying. He, he did a great job. But I just found myself going, I really have, if I didn't already have it on day one, it has just grown how much I love being able to uh, open up God's word with you and being able to do this moment right here of heralding and proclaiming God's word. I want to point something out to you before we get going. Um, we've been doing this for about eight months now, and we've gone through 10 chapters of Bible, four in Philippians, two in Matthew, and then four in John's gospel, John 14 through 17. 10 chapters. So I just want to let you know how we're doing so far. Uh, I looked up how many chapters are in the Bible. Uh, 1,189, so we've accomplished just under 1% of the Bible together um, in, in what we have to do. And, and I just, I think what struck me was the fact that if you gave me just what we've looked at so far, man, I, I could go deep on that for the rest of my life. And Philippians, and Matthew, what Jesus says to his disciples here, but it reminds me of how deep God's word is. You could, it's, it's a well that never runs dry. It is sufficient. It is always telling us what is true because its source comes from our triune Lord himself. And so um, I look forward to what we have in front of us. Uh, again, by way of introduction, I want to tell you a little bit about a conversation I had this last week. Uh, I got to visit a, a dear member in our church, uh, Palmer Home. And if you don't know, this is in your prayer bulletin. Uh, Palmer fell, uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before, hit his head, Bruce's ribs, and so was paying a visit to him and Barbara. But he has become a, a close friend of mine since I've been here, and uh, I, I've realized that if we're not careful, we, we, can, we can just talk, um, and just goes, goes, goes uh, on and on, and I enjoy my time with him. Uh, but we were sitting down, and he says, I have a thought, Aaron, that's been in my mind for the last two weeks, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I, if I share this with you. He was telling me about how he was thinking of his early days in ministry. For those of you who don't know this, uh, he, was, he, he was 
there at the very beginning at Grace Bible Church in Gettysburg. So that's where my wife, Justine, her home church is just about a couple hours west of here. And he was there right at the beginning serving as the early pastor there for about, about a couple years and uh, before the Lord called him on and, and, and eventually to right here with you where he served for many years. And what he was saying to me was, he said, I can't help but wonder about the ripple effect of how God used me in those first two years there and how that affected perhaps your wife decades later. Because Justine and her family ends up going to Grace Bible where would they have gone to church if they didn't end up there? Would she not have eventually gone to the school that is connected to Grace Bible, Tabor College? Would I have not met just, you can play that game, right? And so without Palmer home decades ago doing what the Lord had called him to do, I might not know Justine. What a thought to consider. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Have you ever gone back to the very beginning and gone, if life would have gone just this way, or that way, how much more different, how different the trajectory of your life would have been. Just few decisions, moments, actions, events, whatever. I've done this for myself, and I can tell you, I know the moment where it happened, besides being born. It was when I was in fifth grade, uh, the school that I was going to, Alamo City Christian Academy, closed down. And I remember being devastated because I was gonna lose all of my friends. And then the next year, my parents said, us off to another school, another Christian school called First Baptist Academy, and uh, I went there. But when I went to First Baptist, if that school had never closed down, here's what would have happened. I've never gone to First Baptist Academy, played on the soccer team, and met a guy named Mr. McCullough, whose son played for that soccer team. He said, hey, you're pretty tall. I, the height I am now is what I was like in sixth grade. just shot up, and so they thought I was going to be very tall. And so, anyways... I know how tall you are, brother. Um, anyways, I was looking at this moment and thinking, if Mr. McCall would have never called me and said, hey, I want you to join my son's soccer team, I would have never played club soccer all the way through 12th grade. And if I would have never played club soccer, I would have never had this much ability to be able to sit on the bench for a soccer scholarship at Tabor College. And if I had never gone to Tabor College, I'd never met Justine. I would have never met the pastors who influenced my life. I would never ended up going to California, and I would most certainly not have ended up coming here. Go back to the beginning. If Alamo City never closed down, I wouldn't be the one standing in front of you right now. You see what I'm saying? We don't know how it works in the moment, how the domino falls, the effect it's going to have down the road. What I want to do this morning is I want us to look at how the first key domino falls in the life of Christ that leads him back to his father. I've been pointing out a passage to you for the last couple months. I keep repeating it. I want to do it once more. I want you to look at John 16, 28. This is the key verse that sets us up for what we're going to do. Here's what it says. This sums up the whole book of John. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. The time for talk is over. Jesus has been delivering a monologue, but only what we get from him for the remainder of the next few chapters are short statements. This is now the time for action. And this is how the first domino falls. And we're going to see how that action of his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion and death, and his resurrection, how all of this is going to lead 
back to his father. And so that's why we're calling John 18 through 21 the return to the father. And you'll see how this will coincide, what we're going to do, just give you a heads up, how this is going to coincide with what we'll look at Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection, John 20, and so on. But let me read for you John 18, 1. Look at your Bible with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, referring to the farewell discourse, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. That's key. Hold on to that. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. He's referring, by the way, back to John 17, the high priestly prayer, where Jesus says these words, hold your place, where he says, while I was with them, in verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, referring to Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Okay? With me? Go to verse 10 again in 18, chapter 18. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. This is how he responded. And struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? A garden, a confrontation, and two kinds of responses from Peter and from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, can you take, can you do what we can't do on our own? Can you take what for some of us may be a familiar story, a story about betrayal in the garden, and then can you open it up, do what we can't do, and can you show us how this garden confrontation and man's response versus Jesus' response, what that means for our life. Lord Jesus, show us how in control you are. Show us your authority. Show us what you have taken on, that cup that you have taken in our place for us. Help us to see. Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So you look at verse 1, and verse 1 begins with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he's been speaking for the last several chapters, and now he went out with his disciples. And so if you could rewind the tape, go back to January if you've been with us. And in January, we put up a picture of uh, the Lord's Supper from Leonardo da Vinci. Remember, remember that? And so that had been the setting. Um, didn't probably look exactly like that. Uh, but that had been the setting for that long statement that Jesus had made. 
But somewhere in there, Jesus and the disciples begin to, to leave and, and go out. And the text tells us that they leave and they go out east of Jerusalem into uh, the Mount of Olives. If you look at a map, I, I thought this would be helpful for us to, to situate ourselves because this is history here. I want you to see this. So, so possibly that's where the upper room was. And uh, they left outside the east side of, uh, of Jerusalem. They crossed the Kidron Valley. There's a brook there. They go to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, at the base of it, there is a garden called Gethsemane, and which literally is a transliteration, literally means olive press because of the olive trees that are there. Got some pictures, actually, if you don't know want those trees to look like. This is what modern day um, Jerusalem and the area looks like uh, if you were to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe one day we'll take a trip and some of us will go together. We'll see. So that's where they go to. Jesus had been there several times with his disciples. And um, he's there, his disciples are there, but one Judas, um, he shows up. And if you look at your Bible, you'll notice that Judas is described as the one who betrayed him. If you go back and read the Gospel of John, you'll notice almost every time, uh, usually when you tell a story, you don't want to let the cat out, cat out of the bag too soon. You want to build up for suspense. John just does, does not let you do that. He just tells you from the beginning, this was the guy. He betrayed him. And almost every time, there's that phrase attached to Judas. And he is the one whom Satan entered into. Before Jesus had spoken those words of John 14 through 17, he had washed the disciples' feet, if you remember. And when he had done that, uh, he then says, one of you will betray me. He hands a morsel to the one who would, and it's Judas. And the text tells us that in John 13, 27, Satan enters into Judas. And so the way that the serpent came in the Garden of Eden to deceive Adam and Eve, now... The serpent has embodied Judas in another garden, and he is here to destroy the Messiah. And so Judas knows this place. That's really important for this reason. It's the first tip of the hat that we get in this story to Jesus' authority. I want you to think about this if you're Jesus. Where would you go if you did not want to be betrayed or if you didn't want to be caught? You probably wouldn't go to the place that the guy who's going to betray you knows where you're going to be anyways. So Jesus knew beforehand that Judas was going to do what he was going to do. He knew, he knew what was going to happen. And he, had, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane anyways. It's he who is in control. So Judas brings other men with him. There's two major groups. There's the first group is a, a group of soldiers. Those would be uh, a Roman guard. They would have been there at the time of the Passover to squash any kind of rebellion that might break out because of the swell of Jewish people that were coming for the celebration. So they would have welcomed an opportunity like this to, to put down a religious leader like Christ. But then there was also another group, and this is the temple guard. And so they came as well. And as I was observing this, because typically you can look at a passage like this, run right through it, and not even notice who are the, who's the actual identity of the people who are here. And I think it's a good word for us. It's a good word that puts everyone at the foot of the cross, puts everyone at the foot of judgment, I should say. That it's not just the Jews, but it's also the Gentiles who are guilty before God. It's not just the Jews who betrayed Christ. 
and killed him. The whole world is culpable. No one is righteous, not even one. And so this is the setting. And the conflict begins to develop. And uh, there's, there's really kind of two moves that happen here. The, there's, there's a first sequence. There's a first confrontation. And Jesus, you see his authority. Keep looking for that as we go through this. He steps up and he says, whom do you seek? He's the one who's going to be arrested. And he takes the initiative to step into the situation. I don't know about you, but the last time I saw the TV show Cops, Usually when the police are going to get the criminal, what's happening? There's a chase involved. They're going to get the guy. He's trying to get out of Dodge. He's trying to go. And the authorities are there to catch him. But instead, the exact opposite happens. Jesus steps forward into the situation, and he's the one asking the questions. And he says, whom do you seek? He asks the question. The arresters respond. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers, and he says, I am. Your, your Bible uh, kind of smooths it out a little bit. It says, I am he. The Greek is literally, I am. And I think that that points to something else. We'll see that in a moment. But the moment that he says that, these guys fall back and fall prostrate on, on the ground. And it reminds you of this reality. What was happening in this moment was that the light was shining in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. That's what was happening. One scholar puts it this way, hundreds came to take his life, and they could make no claim on him. Hundreds were hopelessly outnumbered by one. Jew, Gentile, spiritual darkness embodied in Judas, no match for Jesus. And so this is not a typical arrest. And when he says, I am, man, that, that, that should set you off a little bit, because who is the one who says, I am, in the Old Testament? Yahweh God, Right? And so I don't think it's beyond the pale to be able to look at this and see that this is one of those informal I am statements that Jesus is saying he is much more than who he, he actually seems to be at first look. And the evidence is how all of these men fall down. He alone has authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again. There's a second sequence. Basically, the same thing happens. He, he again asks the question, just imagine, they're on the ground, and it's almost like he's, he's continuing that narrative. He has to get to the cross. So he's like, come on, guys, what's the question? What do you want to ask me? And he says, whom do you seek? And again, this is what strikes me. He's, not, he, he's, he's stepping into the moment. He's not avoiding what's going to happen. If it was you and I, and someone came to arrest us, and all of a sudden they're on the ground, what would I be likely to do? All right. It's time to leave. All y'all down, all us leave and go out of here, right? That's what I would have done. But Jesus doesn't move. He asks the question, whom do you seek? The domino must fall so he can get to the cross for us. They answer in the same way, Jesus of Nazareth. He responds and he says, I've told you that I'm he. And then he says something else. He says, but let these go. This is to preserve what he had prayed to his father. That he hasn't lost one of those except for the son of destruction. It just gets me in this way. Jesus, who is being arrested, is the one who is so authoritative in this moment. He decides who the handcuffs are going to go on. He says, you're going to arrest me. You're not going to arrest these guys right here. What authority? 
And not only that, we're told that in verse, in verse 9, this was to fulfill, fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those you gave me, I have not lost one. Don't miss that. Typically, when you read your Bible, especially the Gospels, when the, when the Gospel writers want to prove something, they'll say, Jesus did this, and this was to fulfill the word that was said. And usually, it's referring to something in the, where? Old Testament, right? But yet, that same formula is right here, and it was to fulfill a word that Jesus had said five minutes ago. And you see what's happening, right? What John is doing subtly is he's pointing out the high status that Christ has, that, he is, that he, his words are on the same level as Scripture. It would make sense. He is the Word of God after all. And so he fulfills that word. But then lastly... He delivers these men, his disciples, and yet he knows that they're going to betray him too in just a few minutes. This is the thing that gets me. It's not just Judas who betrays Jesus. It's also Peter, right? And so he delivers someone that he knows is going to be unfaithful to him just four or five verses later. Would you see him who knows how much you will fail him in the future, and yet he is still present for you today. The evidence is how he acted with Peter right here. And so this is happening. The handcuffs are going on, and Peter responds to this, this confrontation. And what he chooses to do is pull out a, a short sword, maybe a dagger, and he pulls it out, and he cuts off the ear of one Malchus. Now, I have thought about this for a long time. How do you swing at someone and only get the ear? How does that work, right? Did he, did he go down like this and that's how he got him? I, I don't know, but it's clear that it's really clumsy. How do you miss all this right here? I got a big noggin. You wouldn't have missed me, right? He only got the ear though. So he gets the ear and it just proves this. He is acting out a step with how these dominoes must fall. And he is the one continuously Peter is that works to keep Christ from fulfilling his mission. You see this elsewhere. Jesus wants to wash the disciples' feet. Who's the one who says no? Peter. Jesus asked the disciples in Mark 8, Matthew 16, whom do you say that I am? Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says yes and begins to tell them about how he is the one who's going to take on an incredible amount of suffering. And Peter says, Lord, may that not be so, and tries to keep him from fulfilling his mission. What does Jesus call Peter in that moment? He says, get behind me, who? Satan, right? And then there's the cutting off of Malchus's ear. I find it so fascinating. Why do we get Malchus's name? Why do we get that name here? Just a quick observation that I think is important for us in how we approach our Bible. Scripture doesn't tell us really much more about Malchus, and the literature I was reading didn't see anything about it. Who knows, maybe Malchus later got saved and the Lord met him, and by the time this, this, this book was written, this gospel was written, uh, the first readers would have gone, oh, I know Malchus, he was the one who was saved. Who knows, maybe that's why. But though we don't know, there was an intention from the author originally. And so I want you to hold on to this thought, keep it in your tool belt, and how you read scripture. The New Testament cannot mean for you what it did not mean for the original hearers of God's word. Consider that there is an author and that there is an audience. 
And when you get back to that first century understanding and go, Lord, this is a real historical book. Show me what I need to know. It is a great reminder that God steps into time, into history. And so anyways, Peter acts in defiance. And he thinks that he's protecting Jesus. Who really knows his motives? Maybe that's what he was thinking. But in the next moment, he betrays him. And we'll take a few chapters later for the good shepherd who will be resurrected from the dead. And he will redeem Peter and say, with these words, feed my sheep. More on that another time. But Jesus responds to Peter and he says, you put that sword away. And he asks this question, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The sword is never the ultimate answer. It's most certainly not the answer in this case. It's the cup that must be taken. And so the cup, if you read your Old Testament, over and over, it is a cup of wrath from God, of judgment that must be taken. And so Jesus says, I must take on that cup. Let me give you a little bit of understanding about how the atonement of Jesus works. You will hear some people who will say things like this. The idea that God would pour out his wrath on his son, that sounds like divine child abuse to me. You ever heard this before? I tell you, I heard this all the time in, in, in the academy. People will say things like, if God was willing to pour out his wrath upon his son, that sounds like an awful father. I want nothing to do with him. You ever heard that? Okay. One problem with that. Jesus has full authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Jesus has the same will as his father. Jesus does nothing. Nothing happens to Jesus that he did not give the green light on. He has the same will as his father. And so it was both the will of the father and the will of the son freely to go on the cross on your behalf. Jesus does not go kicking and screaming. He stands up, takes on what you and I deserve, and he drinks the cup of God's judgment to the dregs. Only God can satisfy the wrath of God for your sake. It was no mere man that was hanging on that cross. It was the God-man taking on God's justice, standing in your place as a man. You see it? He has to be both God and man hanging on that cross for you. And he does it freely. He took the cup for us. But before that happens, this story ends and Jesus is bound and he is taken to the high priest. And from there, the arrest will turn into a trial, and we'll see more on that next week. This is the story. The question is, what in the world do we do with it? I want to give you four things. Four things, now we can apply this to our life. Four, four things. The first is, I would ask you to, to consider what we've been saying, and that you would trust that Christ is always in control. If he's in control here, He's in control of your life too. Take you through the evidence again. He chooses to go to the garden where he knows his betrayer will come. He knows all that will happen to him beforehand. He confronts the situation head on. When he says, I am he, everybody falls down. And he decides who gets arrested and who doesn't. The betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion is not something, of a mere, not something that happens to a mere victim, but to someone who is in control. Again, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so my question for you is this. If Jesus has final authority over his life and what happens to him, and he is God, why would you think for a moment that he does not also have final authority over you and what happens to you? He knows exactly what you are going through. And not one thing that has happened to you has not happened without him being in full control. And so I'd ask you to look at your own life and go, if he's so in control here, am I really trusting him with what's going on in my life right now? The evidence of that is how you respond in your anxiousness, frustration, and your emotions. Look at your emotions and then track them back to their source and go, typically, more times than not, the reason why I act this way comes down to a lack of trust in my Savior. Pray like that man who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We know what we should do, trust him, and yet we can't do it on our own. We need the Spirit to help us. Pray to him that he would give you that ability to trust him who is in control. Second, believe that his purposes are better than yours. Peter can only see the moment. I will tell you this, the deeper I have dived into this text, something hit me in a new way. Imagine that you had been walking with Jesus for three years and you expected a climax to happen in a certain way of a political Messiah and then you're watching everything fall and fall down in front of you. All this happening in the garden, I would feel desperation. I, I, I would feel my hands begin to sweat like what in the world is going on? He could only see that one domino falling down in front of him, friends. He couldn't see how it was gonna lead to his salvation and eternal life. He hadn't processed the words that were so clear. It's called a farewell discourse for a reason. He wasn't listening clearly, or he wasn't getting it over the last few chapters that we've looked at. It didn't click. So I would ask you to look again at your immediate circumstances and say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what this may be right in front of me. But Lord, though I can only see one domino fall, you know how the end of my story is going to work out. You may only see the moment like Peter does or like Job in the Old Testament. But your Savior sees the whole story of your life. And he sees the end result. Trust that his purposes and plans are better than yours. And that this moment that you may find yourself in that may be challenging, it actually, in God's mysterious providence, it is for your good and his ultimate glory. Third, the obvious one. Acknowledge that Jesus gets betrayal better than you do, better than I do. Elsewhere in Hebrews 2, 17, it talks about how Jesus had to take on human flesh so that he would understand us. He could sympathize with us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He understands suffering because he stepped into it himself. Don't you think he understands betrayal? He understands it from Judas. He understands it from Peter. He understands it from how the synoptic gospels talk about how the disciples scattered. He gets it. You might recall two weeks ago something I had said. I expect that you remember everything I say in, from previous servants, sermons. No. A couple weeks ago I had reminded you that we should not have that expectation that unbelievers act like unbelievers, right? We should have that expectation that they're going to act as if they don't have the Holy Spirit because that's the reality. 
you can't say, I want you to live according to this standard. They don't have the spirit of the living God living within them. They don't have the spirit, so we shouldn't hold them to a standard that we ourselves barely hold up to and fail more times than not. That should be expected when pain comes from an unbeliever. I'm not saying it's not painful, but doesn't it hit you away when it come, hit you in a different way? When someone close, whether it's a family member, a close friend, church member who should know better, when they do it to you, Psalm 55 says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. The wound goes deeper when it comes from somebody who should know better, right? That's why it's a betrayal. That's why we call it backstabbing. You didn't expect it because you had an expectation. Friend, you may be carrying wounds for years. Some of you may be carrying wounds in this place from someone else that's in this room. You may be dealing with wounds that happened to you when you were six years old, and you may be 60 and nobody knows about it. Only you and God does. But I want you to know this reality. No betrayal that you have ever been on the receiving end has happened without the Lord of heaven's armies seeing it. And if he sees all things and knows all things like this text says, then you have not been left by yourself in your own suffering. He has been present, friend, the whole time. And he is the one here today looking at you through his word and saying, I can sympathize with you, friend. I know that pain. Don't think that Jesus didn't experience that. I know that pain. And yet, when he experiences betrayal, what floors me is that he behaves in an exemplary way. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the, him who judges, judges justly. What gets me is that, does get you whenever you read the Gospels? Jesus never gets it wrong. Like, he always gets it right. Someone says something ridiculous to him, and he always knows exactly what to say. He responds only the way God would. I find myself in all of my shower arguments. I've told you about this, that I have these, that I have these. I've told you about this before. You, you know all the things later that you should have said in the moment perfectly. And yet, you go, oh, if I would have said that, I'd have got him right there. And yet, Jesus never gets it wrong. He knows exactly what to say in the moment. And so he can handle betrayal. He can even take on the betrayal that you've received. And he knows how to bring healing in this moment in a way nobody else can. Why would you not turn to him? Turn to him today. And then also consider this last thought. I'd never seen this before until I started considering the context in which this betrayal happens. There was one man that God put in a garden called Eden. And that man brought death into the world through his actions. But then there was a second Adam. And his father put him in a garden called Gethsemane. And he took on your death. The first Adam brings death. The second Adam brings life. The first Adam brings sin into the world. The second one, through a garden and his work leading to a cross, dies in your place. And so his actions brought death to himself and life to you. 
He is the better Adam. He takes betrayal, flips it on his head, and turns it into redemption. His purposes are higher. He's always in control. He never loses control. And so I want you to see the one who entered into that garden for you on that day. And he took on the dark night of the soul for you. And then consider for a moment how the story ends. Consider how the story ends in John 20. Give you a glimpse of a few weeks from now. Where is Mary when she's in front of Jesus? She thinks he's a who? A gardener. And so this story that begins in John 18 begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And one day you and I will be in the new heavens and the new earth and there will be that tree of life from that original garden and we will have that redemption that only Christ could have brought because of what he entered into on that day. And so the question that he asked Mary Magdalene, not just a few days from now, is that same question he asked these men in front of him. Whom is it that you are seeking? Friend, who is it that you are seeking this morning? But until that moment where we look at that passage more in detail, let us be the kind of people who trust Christ, turn the one who turned betrayal on its head, let the dominoes of your life and upon fall where they may. And let us say instead, we trust the promises of God. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda. M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.